first reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jerichochin and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elash, son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, son of Hilkan, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number and there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back into the place from which I carried you into exile. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be with you in abundance. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though, for now, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that, the, that they prove the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah, 
and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that they have now been told by you, by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi St Andrews, great to be together in this uh, strange time uh, where everything's a little different, everything's a little crazy and yet God has not changed and his word is as sharp and as true as it's always been. So we get to read God's word and we get to think on it now a little bit more. I'm going to pray for us as we begin. So will you pray with me? Loving Father, we ask so much that now as we focus on your word that you would help us to hear your voice. Teach us what you want us to know today. Lord, please grow us and shape us through your word and by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the years following 600 BC, things in Jerusalem went from bad to worse for God's people. It wasn't long before King Nebuchadnezzar had broken down the walls of the city, destroyed the temple and taken the city's brightest and best as captives back to Babylon. Now, that was the great exile of God's people, forced to live away from their home, strangers in a foreign and hostile place. And it wasn't long before some false prophets among the exiles in Babylon started saying, look, any minute now God is going to destroy the Babylonians and triumphantly return us to Jerusalem. So get ready. Uh, keep your bags packed. It won't be long now. But then the great prophet Jeremiah, the one who had warned of all of the horrors of their capture by Nebuchadnezzar, he wrote them a letter from Jerusalem. He was still stuck back there. And it was another word from God. And the letter said, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And so Jeremiah's message to the exiles was that they're going to be there for a while. For 70 years, a lifetime for many. I imagine most of those who grew up in Jerusalem would die in Babylon. They'd always be God's people. They should retain their identity as such, but they should engage in their city. They needed to live where they were, but always remember Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Well, Jeremiah's letter continued. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good purpose, sorry, fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Well, what's God's good plan that he has for his people? Well, it's to return them to Jerusalem. That is the place where their future, where their hope is located. But for now, they're in Babylon, where they must call on God in prayer. When, and God will listen to their prayer and he will answer them. Now, Babylon was by no means a home away from home. They, they were oppressed. They were outsiders and they were under pressure to adopt Babylonian ways. But in, instead of separation and isolation, the Jewish exiles in Babylon were to engage. 
They were to seek their city's good and prosperity. But their home and their identity was always in Jerusalem. And it is this identification of God's people as exiles that undergirds the letter of 1 Peter, a letter from which uh, sorry, a letter which the apostle Peter wrote from Rome around about the years 62, 63 or maybe even 64 AD. And the message of 1 Peter, which is the heart of this new sermon series, is a message of hope. Hope for God's people who are living as exiles. Now, Peter's own experience in Rome at that time is foundational to this message. You see, his experience in Rome was a bit like that of the Jews in Babylon, except it was worse, and it was about to get much worse. That's why throughout his letter, Peter refers to suffering for doing good, to testing and trials, to ignorant talk and insults and slander, and ultimately to a fiery ordeal. So what's going on in Rome then to make Peter think that? Well, Emperor Nero is on the throne and he's decided he hates Christians and pretty soon he's going to begin their systematic destruction. When a huge fire broke out in Rome on July the 19th, 64 AD, so that's precisely 1,957 years tomorrow, when that fire had burned almost a quarter of the city and conveniently cleared the way for Nero's recently planned palace extensions, rumours started to blame Nero for the lighting of the fire deliberately. And so Nero decided, I better start shifting the blame and I'll shift it to the Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus writes this, Therefore, to scotch the rumour, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, Christ, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on account of arson, as for hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. So life for the Christians of Rome was very difficult. And it was around about this time that Nero had Peter crucified upside down and the Apostle Paul beheaded. This letter that we're reading was written just in the lead up to those terrible events. And let's remember, at the very same time, General Vespasian was crushing Jewish resistance in Judea, laying siege to Jerusalem. After Nero's suicide, Vespasian was the first to successfully take over as the next emperor. And he left his son Titus to complete the conquest of Jerusalem, which is actually what's depicted here in this sculpture in Rome. Uh, once again, the, the Jews are dispossessed while their temple is destroyed. And here they are as exiles again. So Peter's experience, in his experience, Rome is, is like Babylon, but it's worse. 
And either way, it's clear that the Christian needs to understand themselves in a new way, in a way that more accurately represents their place in the world. So this, this letter seeks to frame the way that Christians view themselves in their world. They are exiles. So Peter begins his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So to whom is the letter addressed? To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout modern Anatolia. These Christians are both chosen and they are exiles. Peter reinforces this as their identity at other key moments in the text of the letter. For example, a little later in chapter 2, he writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The Christian self-understanding, therefore, is to be ground in the experience of the exile. Like, like the exiles of Babylon, uh, maybe Rome is approaching, Rome is coming, but for now, among Peter's audience, and I think we ourselves in 21st century Sydney, we are living in Babylon. We're settled here, we have jobs and houses and cars, but we don't belong here. We belong in another place. This is temporary. As the Lord Jesus himself put it, we're living in the world, but we are not of the world. This is living in exile. So let's dig into this mindset of an exile a little bit more. How do we live as exiles? Well, that's what this whole letter of 1 Peter is all about. And throughout the series, we're going to see that the exiles hold on to their lives in Babylon Roseville very lightly. I once got to know a Tongan guy in Manly, and he, he lived in a fairly small apartment with some other Tongan guys, and let's say they were fairly modest circumstances in the Tongan vernacular. He, he always dressed nicely and he always spoke really well, but he never really seemed to have that much in this life. He was, he was studying in Sydney and he was working a part-time job to help make ends meet. One day, my friend confided in me that he was actually a prince, uh, he was some kind of nephew to the king of Tonga. Uh, he didn't look much like a prince to me when he was living in his little unit in the back of Manly. But, uh, so he told me, whenever he went home to Tonga, he lived in some kind of a palace. Uh, once he got off the plane and he set foot in his home country, he was treated like royalty because that's what he was. And as Christians, we're a little bit like that Tongan prince living in a crummy little apartment in the back of Manly. We are truly the king's chosen sons and daughters, but we are far from home. We are exiles here. And so as exiles, we know that Roseville is temporary. Our current situation will not endure because it's not really our home. This is not who we are. We belong 
somewhere else. We are citizens of another empire. We serve at the pleasure of another king. And for that reason, we should not expect Roseville to satisfy us, to fulfill our ambitions and our dreams. It's always going to leave us a bit flat and a bit empty. Disappointment is built into the fabric of this place. No matter how many upgrades to our houses, amazing holidays or once in a lifetime experiences, we will still want more because we're not ultimately satisfied away from our true home. Babylon will never taste as good as our heavenly home. Now, exiles know this, and so they walk lightly in their temporary towns, holding on to this life with an open hand. Yes, they engage their city, but they do good in their city, seeking its good, and they know this could all go to water very quickly. But living in exile is not a neutral experience either. The Christian exile knows that Babylon, Roseville, is actually a kind of a dangerous place for them. As, as foreigners in a strange place, they need to take precautions. They don't buy into everything that the locals do. Instead, they choose to abstain, to say no to the more dangerous aspects of the local customs, fully aware that Babylon is actually waging war against their souls. Instead, the Christian exile lives such a good life among the other Rosevillians that though they accuse the Christians of doing wrong, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns. So this is the, the way of thinking that 1 Peter calls us to cultivate. But more important than all of these aspects of the mindset of the Christian exile is hope. Hope is the key. Hope is that future reality that reaches back into our present and draws us forward in the right direction. Uh, let's see how this hope launches the body of Peter's letter. Uh, so verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the crucial idea here embedded in Peter's prayer of praise is that God has given the Christian exile new birth into a living hope. This new birth is what makes them exiles. Now that they are Christians, their home is in another place. They are, they are part of a new people group born into that group through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and born into an inheritance which is kept in heaven. You see, when a child is born, they're, they're, they're born into a particular family and families come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But whatever the family though, that family is a reality which will determine so much of that child's life. Imagine you were born into an indigenous family in remote Australia. You have a rich inheritance of culture, but very sadly, poor educational and health prospects. Or imagine you were born into a royal family, like my Tongan friend. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but you were born into an inheritance of dignity and wealth. You see, we're all born into something. 
And so in a far more profound sense, 1 Peter tells the Christian they have been born into an inheritance, a reality which determines the trajectory of their lives now and their ultimate destiny. It's an inheritance, a future destiny that is protected. It can never perish or spoil or fade because it's kept by God in heaven. It's secure. Now, I guess some inheritances are a bit iffy, uh, uncertainly, if the inheritance is all tied up in the stock market or in a superannuation fund, it might lose its value over time. It's, it's no good being born into an inheritance that gets used up or lost or loses its value before the kids are old enough to inherit it, right? But for the Christian, this is not a concern because God guards and guarantees our inheritance in heaven, just like it says in there in verse 4. And so it's this future reality, our hope, that anchors us. We know that whatever happens on this journey, we will end it up seated with Christ in glory. We are the adopted children of God, sharing all the blessings that belong to Jesus. We enjoy his friendship, his fellowship, his purpose and his life. And so because of this, we are able to endure. We can hang in there. We can persevere knowing that God is shielding us until the glory and majesty of our final salvation is revealed at the return of Christ. And this future is so great, so powerful, it actually invades our present with joy. No matter what our circumstances are this very day, so Peter says in verses 6 and following, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our future situation, our inheritance, our hope changes our present. It, it's a reason to be joyful. We're, we're talking about something here that is more profound than happiness, something far more substantial, actually, and enduring that rises above our immediate circumstances, whatever they are. See, joy is a, a deep-rooted well-being, a peace, shalom, which overflows in delight and in blessing. And so we rejoice in our present situation on account of our future. And that's a good thing, because as exiles, we should expect to face grief in all kinds of trials. Notice that the trials and the joy run alongside each other in this life. They're like two railway tracks. Uh, Peter's got a lot more to say on this topic of trials and opposition and even injustice. But up front, we should know that the Christian finds themselves in this tension between the present and the future. Though we've not seen Jesus Christ face to face, we love him. We believe in him. 
And so we're filled with, with the joy of this future return, when, when we shall actually experience the salvation of our souls. So, where have we come today? One of the ways that we make sense of our lives is through stories. We, we have a narrative in our heads which makes sense of our experience. We, we, we are the characters, we are the players in these stories, and because we know how the story goes, we can make sense of all of the complexities of our life. Uh, so, for example, you, you might see yourself as, as the Aussie battler, working hard to build security for your family in a tough world, in a harsh climate. Uh, you make sacrifices because you want to see your kids and your grandchildren comfortable and happy, educated with good jobs. And so you tell yourself the Aussie battler story and it keeps you going. Perhaps you might tell yourself the story of the sporting hero, right? They, they said you'd never make it, but you train and you sacrifice and, and one day you'll be an Olympian. I'm sure you know how this works, right? Everybody has some kind of story in their head, a, a narrative that explains and makes sense of our lives. It's the story of our identity. This is who we are and what we're all about. And that's exactly what's going on in this letter of 1 Peter. The apostle writes to the Christians scattered across the Roman Empire to encourage them with the truth that they are elect and they are exiles. Twin truths that sit alongside each other. The Christian has been chosen and born into a living hope, an inheritance of unspeakable greatness in company with the Lord Jesus. But for now, that means the Christian is far from home. They are strangers and foreigners who do not belong in Babylon or Roseville. As exiles, we do engage with the locals, we do good and we seek the good of our city. But we don't for a moment imagine that anything less than the return of the Lord Jesus in glory will truly satisfy us. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we are strangers in a strange land and we yearn for home. Please will you grant to us clear sight to live well and focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen.